Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Happy Thanks Christ Week. Thanks be to God. And I just want to start today. I'm thankful to have Carl Teichrib back with us. Can't wait to talk about some of the things, some of the research that he does. But before we do that, um, I just want to share Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with jubilation. Come before him with rejoicing. Know that God, know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his faithfulness is to all generations. So let me encourage you to give thanks to God regardless of your circumstances in our pursuit of holiness rather than happiness. And in this short life, which is but a vapor, God has blessed us. He has saved us. He gives us everything we need for life and for godliness. And it's because of him we await the blessed hope and uh, the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you. We praise you. We want to enter your presence and your gates with thanksgiving and praise. Humbly, uh, on our knees, Lord, we come before you and, and cry out to you as our creator, redeemer, our reigning king. And we thank you, Jesus, for ministering to each one of our listeners, the people that are tuning in right now. We pray that you give them exactly what they need today and help us all cultivate an attitude of gratitude Thanksgiving in the little things, thanksgiving in the big things. But God, we give you all the glory for our lives and for what you're doing. We know you're always working in the realm of the Spirit, and for that we thank you, though we might not see it materialize in the natural. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this week that we are reminded here in America of how many blessings we have and the Constitution that we have, the religious freedoms that we have, and help us to be um, obedient to your word as we live one day at a time and try to shine the light in the darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are blessed to have back with us Carl Teichrib, author of Game of Gods. He's authored specialized reports, books, over 200 articles and essays on globalization and its many subtopics. He's a conference speaker. He's given lectures across North America, uh, United States, and Canada. He lives up north with his wife and children in Western Canada. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Parliament of World Religions, plus the topic of spiritual politics and this push for global unity. And Carl Teichrib, thank you for coming back on Stand Up for the Truth, brother. Hey, thank you so much for having me on the program, and thank you for reading that section of Scripture. Oh. Boy, you know... We have, all you need to do is turn on the news, and it's bad news, bad mm -hmm. news. You get on social media, and there's something going on, and you, and you just shake your head about what's happening in the world. But, but, God is good, mm. and God is merciful, and God is great, and our attitude should still be one of thanksgiving, even more so knowing where our salvation rests. Amen, brother. Amen. And um, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. I know you guys celebrate Boxing Day up there, too, right? <laughs> <laughs> we, we do. And, of course, for, uh, in Canada, we celebrate Thanksgiving in uh, October. We're not sure why you folks leave it so long in the season, but... <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. It's his, it's, it's his deal. No, uh, we're thankful for him. Yeah, he designated that the, the last Thursday or the fourth Thursday of November. Uh, but my wife is from Toronto, and, and we say Toronto, not Toronto, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I didn't realize that your wife is a Canadian. Yeah, yeah, she is. So, uh, so she's listening. Um, 
So, Carl, before we're going to talk about so much, including a great chapter in your book. I believe it's chapter 12 called Spiritual Politics, Forcing Change. And uh, this is in your book, Game of Gods. But before we do that, you've got some great Facebook posts, by the way, and I appreciate just uh, you putting stuff out there. Great articles. I just picked up that article that you shared. um, What was it on Marx and alienation? I encourage people to check Mm. that out. But Burning Man. You've been to some of those, or at least one, uh, in the past, but there was just one, I guess, they held recently that was a virtual uh, Burning Man. Is that yeah. true, and what, 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 how did that work? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I've, been to three, I've been to three of the burns in northern Nevada. I was there in 2017 when the theme was Radical Ritual. 2018, the theme was iRobot. <laughs> which uh, brought about questions uh, in terms of what is the connection between man and machine, what is our relationship with AI, some really interesting conversations built around that theme, and some very, very interesting art pieces that reflected those questions. And then I was there in 2019, the theme was metamorphosis, and of course then COVID hit mm-hmm. in 2020, and so Burning Man in 2020 uh, went online. It became a digital experience. And so in 2020, I believe there were six or seven different virtual worlds that you could access. Um, I, I spent about 60 hours in 2020 uh, with my son's Oculus headset uh, going into the virtual burn. And then 2021... Um, 2021 also had a virtual burn, a number of virtual burns. 2021 also had uh, a renegade burn, and it happened also in 2020. 2020, uh, there were people who were going, mm, no, no, I'm not in time for going out to the desert. And so in 2020, there was, I think, 100 or 3,000 people that, that gathered in the desert and just did their own renegade thing <laughs> without any organization or structure. And then this year, 2021, the same thing happened, except it was big. It was about 25,000 people who showed up. Wow. Um, yes. And, and there was a lot more structure to it, even though it was, uh, it, it didn't have an organization looking over it. It was, it was really an interesting experiment in, in how they can kind of come together in, in an impromptu and yet at the same time, semi-organized way because they they all kind of understand how it needs to be done to make it to make it work. That's a lot of people mm, to, yes. to you know to shove in a desert with no no porta potties or no real real structure to it. Of course, everybody has to bring their own stuff then. But at the same time, there was the digital burn and, and being in Canada and not being able to cross the border to to Nevada. Um, I spent my time uh, going into the virtual burn. Virtual burn. Now, I think it's probably important for me to tell your audience, David, what Burning Man even is. Yes, yes, thank you. I'm sure that I'm sure there's a lot of people who are kind of scratching their heads, going, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> and understandably so. Burning Man is a massive gathering that happens in the Black Rock Desert of Northern Nevada every year. And when I'm saying massive, I'm talking like in in the neighborhood of, for, for 2019, the neighborhood of 80,000 people gathering. Wow. And they gather in a makeshift temporary city. The city has its own street layout. Uh, it has its own newspapers. It has its own airport. It's an FAA temporary approved airport. Jeez. It has hospital and medical, uh, not hospitals, but medical uh, camps set up. Um, there's There's a... a uh, a lot of art pieces that go with it, and there's a real thirst and hunger for spirituality. People are there searching. A lot of people, David, are just there for the party. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's a lot who are there for the spirituality because they have temples that are set up. And in the very center of the city, in the very center of this massive, massive gathering, is a, is a, an enormous human effigy. And then at the end of the week, they burn that human effigy, hence it's called Burning Man. And they burn the temples, and the temples are big. Um, the, 20, the 2018 temple was a big spiral structure that I believe was 65 feet, 65 feet high wow. and 250 feet across. Wow. We're not talking small time. This no. is big. No, what's the purpose of setting them aflame? 
the idea of of birth, death, and then renewal, those concepts come into play. Hmm. Uh, the, the temporary nature of your own existence, all those more philosophical kind of questions pop up out of so much of this. And because the entire event itself is temporary, mm-hmm. when the city is, when the event is done, the city disappears and it goes back to, um, back to a flat desert space. If you would go there right now, to the Black Rock Desert, you would see nothing. There's nothing there at all that would tell you that a city of 80,000 people had existed. So let me ask you this. This sounds so extensive, and it sounds like it costs an awful lot of money to put this together, to build this city, the temple, the Burning Man, and all these other facilities they bring into this desert, this open space. Where, who organizes this? Where does the money come from? And what else can you tell us about that? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, there is an organization behind it, and the organization charges um, ticket prices to get in, and, and it's really hard to get into the event. Uh, the, the ticket prices basically goes to paying their salaries, to bringing in porta-potties, uh, to, con- you know, the contractors that keep the city kind of running. But everything else, David, and I do mean everything, including the massive temples, all of that is built voluntarily. There's, there's no. Uh, they, they may be doing some private fundraising, each different artist or different group, but but your ticket doesn't doesn't go to that. It's voluntary. This is a voluntarily done city. Pretty well every aspect of it, besides the basic infrastructure of street layouts, porta potties, uh, some of the. Uh, the necessities to make this all happen because you need some order, otherwise 80,000 people, it, it'll go, it'll be crazy. Mm-hmm. The rest of it, though, is done gifted, you know, gifting, it's voluntary. Wow. Wow, unbelievable. And, and people are spending, people spend anything from thousands to tens of thousands to there is one massive art car called Mayan Warrior, and it comes up from Mexico City, um, and, and it's an incredible piece of technology this vehicle it's a sound stage with 70,000 watts of power sound power incredible lasers and the price to build that i have heard ranged anywhere from 3.5 to 5 million to build that unit and it was done by people who want to be there wow so much going on in our world, and that's right here in North America, and so little knowledge of this. And all of it goes back to a, a, a seeking for spirituality, and that's what we're going to talk about even more. Yes, yes. So, so much of it does, and here's the important thing that a lot of people, I think, will miss if they don't, if they don't grasp what's going on there. This is really Silicon Valley. Hmm. Silicon Valley goes to this event. Silicon Valley hmm. builds this event in many respects. Interesting. If you use Google, you're already tapping in to the creative impulse of Burning Man because Google and Burning Man are tightly, tightly interconnected. In fact, when Eric Schmidt, who became the CEO who made Google what it is today, when, when uh, he was being screened for the position of CEO one of the reasons he got the job, one of the, one of the things that set his resume apart from everybody else is that he had Burning Man on his resume. And Larry Page and the other uh, uh, people with, within the Google team, they are longtime burners. That's, they go there. They, they, they understand this. And so they have totally integrated that within their corporate structure. So when you're using so many of the apps, when you're using things like Google, when you're using Silicon Valley's products, and we're all doing it, keep in mind that behind so much of their creativity has been experiences at places like Burning Man. Mm. Incredible. I just saw another so, article. Yeah, go ahead, Carl. Well, I was just going to say, so we, we go there with a small team um, for two reasons. First, for myself as a researcher, you're going to workshops, you're going to lectures, you're going to, to networking events where you are listening uh, to, to some of these change agents, the Silicon Valley gurus talking about what direction they want to take the world. But then we also set up a camp with a sign that says Camp of the Unknown God, hmm. based out of Acts 17, and then 
for the duration of that week, we end up having conversations, sometimes not a lot of conversations, but sometimes some incredibly deep conversations as people come by, see our sign, ask questions, and we use that as a, a an open door to do Christian outreach in what is essentially a non-Christian environment. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll say, yeah. <laughs> but anything goes. It's an anything goes environment. And just the fact that they burn the effigies at the very end of the festival, just uh, I, I think I read somewhere where they're trying to make the statement that it, it alludes to how temporary things are in this life is. And it's, they, they burn it all because it's going to burn anyway, right? Well, that's biblical technically, <laughs> right? Second Peter 3. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they're kind of doing uh, something that's kind of somewhat prophetic. So, Carl, let's move on. Um, let's talk about the, the, all the information in your chapter was so helpful in me going back and understanding uh, 20 years plus of uh, some of these events and some of the the, the move, the ecumenical movement, um, with some of what the United Nations is pushing. But a couple of these quotes are fascinating from spiritual politics. Um, recognizing the need to work together to strengthen the United Nations, religious groups are creating a powerful voice of unity that's a core principle of world federalism, and then one more, the U.N. focus on the, quote, oneness of humankind and for the growth of planetary consciousness, end quote. Some just fascinating goals and visions and ideas of some of these uh, globalists and these spiritualists. Yes, Uh, and and that's chapter 12 out of my book, Game of Gods. You know, One thing I I try to do in the book was to give, especially part four of the book, I give four windows into how the world is is changing. The first window, chapter 11, is all on world order, and I I entitle it The Cult of World Order, where I take you to United Nations events, global governance events, world federalist meetings, meetings I myself, many of them, have attended personally, uh, because that's that's the approach I take. I I do Boots on the Ground Research. Chapter 12, the one that you just alluded to, is on spiritual politics, and that is the interlock between religious organizations, the interfaith movement, and the United Nations, and the desire and dreams of one world. Hmm. The other two chapters that offer like snapshots into some of the changes taking place, chapter 13 goes right into transhumanism in a significant way. It's probably one of the most historically uh, dense chapters I have on that topic. And then chapter 15 goes into the world of transformational events, Burning Man being, of course, front and center of that. But chapter 12 on spiritual politics, I, I, David, I wanted people to, to recognize that there is this tight, tight interlock between the, the philosophy and the visions of religious leaders when it comes to globalization, specifically political globalization around the United Nations. So I take you to the Global Summit of the United Religions Initiative, which is an event I attended in 2000, all the way up to the Parliament of World Religions uh, in 2015. I've been to the 2015 Parliament, I was at the 2018 Parliament, and then this year I attended the uh, 2021 Virtual Parliament. And it's important for people to recognize that these events, especially events like the Parliament of the World's Religions, they set the tone and they give the international community some moral legitimacy or moral clout. Hmm. They're basically um, mirroring what the United Nations says, but then it's labeled and, and placed within the context of we are doing this because this is a a spiritual, moral, ethical duty. And it's fascinating as the language itself turns and changes. So this year, so much of it was on compassion. And so the 2021 Parliament, part of its theme was, was this idea of what does compassion look like? And so questions of social justice, the ideals of world citizenship, working for climate change, mm-hmm. working to restructure capitalism into some form of, of socialistic, internationalist 
uh, new economy, all of that, all of that is now thrown under the label of compassion. And if you're against that, therefore, you're not compassionate. Right. Let's pause. Spin can go with it. Carl, let's pause right there. We've got to take a break, but I want to pick it up on that point, how they kind of virtue signal, don't they? If you're against Mm -hmm. in the environmental movement, saving the earth, climate change, then you're not compassionate and you don't love your neighbor, right? So biblical, the biblical worldview is in the way. More with Carl Tycrib. We're going to discuss the increasing drive to unite world religions, plus global unity and the UN goal for the salvation of the earth. More on Stand Up For The Truth in just a minute. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Our guest today, Carl Teichrib. His book, Game of Gods, is a masterpiece, uh, meticulous in its research, and he is a researcher, and he's done so much work. Carl, uh, remind us again, how many pages is your book, Game of Gods? It's just massive. <laughs> it is big. It's, it's five, you know, by the time you get the index in there, it's 570 pages, and there's exactly 1,800 uh, footnotes. <laughs> So the documentation is extensive, and I wrote it that way, David, because I didn't want people to read and go, hmm, this is just your opinion, (laughs) or do you have any proof of this? Well, here you go, chase the rabbit trails. I'm giving you all the crumbs you need to do that. And some people are still too lazy to do that, and they'll say, oh, okay, I'm not going to. Anyway, I want you to pick up on your point that you made right before we took a break, because this comes into the really the either discrimination against Christians, it may be even persecution, but you know we know in these world religions and these meetings and all the festivals and all the movements, anything goes except the exclusive gospel and the biblical worldview. So you mentioned compassion, and that's one of the, the pushes. And, and who wouldn't be compassionate? So, of course, Christians, I believe, are some of the most compassionate People. I mean, look at what has been done in the world, whether that be, um, you know, nonprofits or, or feeding the poor, uh, humanitarian efforts, um, all the things that Christianity has done. And a lot of that is compassion driven. I mean, look at Compassion International. And yet they look at us because we are I- exclusive. We say Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. To them, that's not compassionate. And plus, because we don't have the same focus on saving the earth, on climate change, on uniting all these world religions. So finish your point, what you were sharing about their view of compassion. Yes, you know, their view of compassion for for the uh, 2021 Parliament was that compassion, in order to be true compassion, it must be for the, the betterment of the greater good. It must be for the earth community. That was the concept. So mm. social justice themes and social justice, global citizenship ideals, working for climate change, yep. working to restructure global economics, all of that, what we would understand as leftist politics, that's compassion. Mm. Exclusivism and narrow-focused thinking, nationalism, that's the opposite. And so the, the language becomes, it, it, it becomes twisted for what we understand it, but it is so, so important to hear what they're saying and how they're saying it and how they will use a word like compassion in a way that we, that we as Christians, we would recognize when we go, oh yes, we want to be compassionate. And then you realize what their standard of that is, and you're going, well, that's that's not the standard that we use. That's not the biblical standard. This is you're asking me to be compassionate to what basically the United Nations agenda and what their thinking is. That's now the version. And so this is a very uh, important way of being able to therefore label and castigate your opponents. Mm-hmm. Because now they're, they're holding the moral high ground. They have the language. Mm. And they can make that claim that you, you are not a good citizen. You are not working for the betterment of others. You are selfish. And what we need to do is become compassionate. And so by holding that language, 
they take that higher position in their view, in the world's view, and we find ourselves increasingly being marginalized and even demonized as we don't fit into their categories anymore. Mm-hmm. Talk about redefining. Isn't this the way it goes? Oh, go ahead. Everywhere. Mm. Yeah. So just gonna say, David, it's like this everywhere, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, I mean, words. You just think compassion. It's, it's of course that's a good thing in the traditional and true definition and meaning of it. And then you, because t- compassion isn't the root word. Doesn't that mean to suffer with? But that's not really the way they, they're not defining it that way, are they? They're. Uh, and pro- what about social justice? What about diversity? What about equity? What about inclusion? All these words that they have redefined and twisted to exclude the biblical worldview and Christians and uh, the focus on the earth, the focus on idolatry, idolatry, the focus on um, bringing all religions together. And let's go on with, in your chapter, Carl, uh, another quote that jumped out at me was that, first of all, it wasn't surprising that uh, uh, Muslims and Buddhists and uh, Catholics and and others are working together on this, but us, you, on Let's see, what does this say? Um, this guy named Reverend James T. Christie of South Minister United Church. Um, and I also want you to explain in a minute the World Federalist Movement, because I don't think we're aware of what that is and what their goals are. But you say in your book, a draft summary statement was distributed calling for, quote, religious and political leaders to develop a shared vision of global unity and the governance for the new millennium. What does that mean, Carl, and what does that look like to them? (laughs) All right, well, backing up just a little bit, it's important (laughs) for your listeners to understand that religions, in terms of their constituents, may have as many or more people, more members than national uh, national entities, more than than countries and nation states, and this is something that's recognized by these by these people. They recognize that if you are a religious leader, if you are the leader, let's say of of a, an umbrella organization for Africa or an umbrella organization for uh, you know, let's say with a, a Protestant group or a, a Catholic group, whatever the group may be, or a Buddhist group the constituents underneath your umbrella may number as much or more sometimes than, than, than what is in, in nation states. Therefore, if you can swing them around to accept your way of thinking, your global ideals, you now wield an incredible tool to change national politics, to change social uh, social and cultural norms to accept globalization. And so it's understood that as religious leaders, they need to come together with a unified vision for what the world should be mm. to create heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. That's their language. Yes. And in creating heaven on earth, you will then uh, hopefully, in their view, have your mass of constituents all working underneath you, more or less becoming lobbyists uh, exerting political influence either in the you know at the ballot box or writing letters or engaging in a in literally first of all in a worldview change that accepts that what we need to do as religious people is to be compassionate and work for the betterment of the earth and for and for the unity of all that that mm-hmm. is those are the moving parts right. those are the pieces of how this fits so I, I love that, and I want to add to that just to give people a, just a clear understanding of what this is about. The very last uh, line in the description of your book, Game of Gods, is this. Humanity has three great desires, to be as God, to be masters of meaning and destiny, and to build heaven on earth, which you just mentioned. So if we bring it down into those simple terms, it gives us a really clear understanding of their, really their worldview and their focus, correct? Correct, absolutely. And the important thing for people to recognize is, because it's so easy to get lost in the weeds, there are are so many rabbit trails to take, the important thing for people to recognize is that what we are what we are really discussing is an alternative salvation message. Yes. 
This is man saying through our unity politically, religiously, economically, even technologically, through our unity, we can save the earth and redeem ourselves. And I'm saying that not because, you know, this is something hinted at within that world. No, they're very clear in their statements towards that. So I'll give you an example. The 2018 Parliament of the World Religions, during the closing statements, the executive director of the parliament came up and literally thanked us. Uh, and I've got one well, of the quotes in front of me right now. Thanks to all of those who are committed to the salvation of the earth. And we were told repeatedly that this is an act of salvation. What we are doing is building salvation on earth. Now, that executive director, Larry Greenfield, would label himself as a Christian. And so this is, this, is the, this is the importance of understanding the core of what globalism is. It's the desire to say, we save ourselves, we do this in our unity, we don't need God, the God of the Bible. He's excluded. We keep him out of the walls as we build our tower. Mm. Fascinating. Cause I, was, is, it, I was just going to ask you about the, the parallel to, in the book of Genesis, the Tower of Babel or Babel, whatever you want to, you know, it's yes. Babel, Babel, I've even heard it pronounced as. That's fascinating because isn't that what they were doing? Kind of we, we don't need anything. We can build our—we're great. Mankind is great. We're going to build this tower. Isn't that interesting? You know something, David? I, I bring out, I have a chapter in the book on, on something called Cosmopolis, the idea of the world city. Not that you have a city ruling the world, but that, that can be a part of it, but rather the idea that the world itself is a great city, and we will be the ones who are in charge of, of the direction of that great city. Hmm. It is a, a parallel uh, of the Tower of Babel, hmm. You, let, let's, put it, let's put it this way. We, are, we have never been able to escape the shadow of Genesis 11, exactly. the shadow of the Tower of Babel. Exactly. Isn't that the push, and though, it, that the, these groups are making? Because God judged them, and he divided them. He, con, he confused their languages so they would spread out. And isn't that fascinating that, that the, the Parliament of World Religions and all these other groups— and movements are trying to unite humanity, right? The spirituality and the politics. But God wanted us to be separate, didn't want us to come together. And isn't that interesting, though, because God judged them for that. Oh, exactly. And God judged them at a point, uh, and, <clears throat> and you, can, you can read this in Genesis 11 as I hint at it, that in essence, if God hadn't judged the way he did, and he brings mercy in his judgment, hmm. probably greater consequences would have happened if he had allowed it to take place. And, and you get a hint of that when, when you read in that chapter that, that if they're left, if these people are left to do what they want to do, then nothing is impossible. Hmm. And the context isn't, isn't in a beneficial way, it's in a negative way. And so God steps in at the right time mm -hmm. and stops the tower from being constructed, because it wasn't about the building per se. It was about what they were doing collectively in their hearts, first and foremost. And mm. then what we do in our hearts, we do with our hands. Wow. But, but the, the amazing parallel really is from there to Revelation, where mankind unites, we come together, we build our world, we say no to God, we say yes to world unity, we say yes to having our own heaven on earth, and God comes in judgment at the right time. Mm. Um, you also say in that chapter, um, this, and this goes, we're following this theme here of man uh, being God, man seeking his own salvation. And you attended an event, you say, to better understand how spiritual politics was envisioned, and you interacted with the world federalists, and... The, here's what you said. It was evident that the prevailing motive was this. We must redeem ourselves. How? By creating an orderly and just society. And then it goes on celebrating diversity and with a, within a great federation of humanity. And so there's a theme here in what you're researching, what we're talking about. And, of course, it parallels Genesis 11. We've, we can redeem ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
Absolutely. Uh, world federalism, the idea of the world federalist movement, and that's an organization, the world federalist movement, it is both an organization and a goal. World federalism is the concept of bringing the world together politically under a world federal government. And the movement has been in play since before World War I, but in World War II, it organized itself. Uh, in fact, there was a number of world federalist and world government groups that formed during World War II. And then after World War II, uh, towards the end of World War II and the, in the, and the years immediately after, the, the movement, the historical movement, all these different organizations, a lot of them coalesced and formed a, a group called the United World Federalists. And then from there, that same organization changed and morphed over time. And today it's called the World Federalist Movement. In the United States, your national branch was the World Federalist Association. I believe they're now re, renamed as uh, Citizens for Global Solutions. Hmm. My country, Canada, has the World Federalist Movement Canada. Hmm. And in the 19, late 1990s, um, I, for lack of a better word, embedded myself within that movement. I did it so I could do the research necessary for at that point. I was working with Gary Carr. I was his, I was his director of research. And uh, I... I attended a lot of different World Federalist events, uh, World Federalist events in Chicago, New York, Dallas, um, all over the place. And in, two, in the year 2000, when I was a delegate at the United Nations Millennium Forum, and I attended that for that week, uh, I didn't go as, I didn't go, David, as, as press. I didn't go with, with press credentials. I, I leveraged or I allowed my my membership and my involvement with the World Federalists to leverage myself in as, a, as somebody who is an independent expert on globalization, but I didn't realize it until after I got to the, for, to the forum hmm. that because I had been involved so deeply with the World Federalists, um, they're the ones who more or less made sure that, that they stacked, stacked the, the chairs, so to speak, at the United Nations Millennium Forum with World Federalists. And, so I was listed, uh, you can still find the documents, I'm listed as an independent expert on, uh, for, for why I was there, but realistically, and there's a bunch of us as independent, so-called independents, who were there under the guise of the World Federalist Movement to make sure that the World Federalist agenda, the world government agenda, was the agenda mm. of the United Nations Millennium Forum. So I was deeply involved, mm. deeply involved in, in a number of those aspects did it for research purposes, and the benefit of that now is you can go into Chapter 11 of my book and dive deep, deep into some of those historical and contemporary movements. Here's the thing that's important to understand when it comes to world federalism, the idea of world government. This is not conspiracy. These are real organizations yeah. with real agendas, with yes. real budgets, Mm -hmm. They work within the State Department and with the U.S. State Department. They work in the United Nations. They work um, uh, paralleling and, and interacting and lobbying the European Union. The list goes on and mm. on. This is not something that's hidden. It's not conspiracy. Anybody can access it if you're willing to take the time and yes. dig and go in. Uh, and I did that. And you I did that for... Your benefit. Yes, and you dug and dug and dug and came out with a 600-page book. And, Carl, <laughs> when we come back, we're going to answer the question. We're going to let you answer the question. You know, we have the United Nations. So why not United Religions? We're talking with Carl Tykrib, and we're going to get into some of this more on Stand Up For The Truth in just a minute. Keep it right here. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. Carl Tykrib is our guest, and brother, you've got some of the most gorgeous sunrises up in your neck of the woods. I saw that photo on your Facebook page. Just God's masterpiece, huh? God's paintbrush. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Thanks for sharing those. You know, you bet. I'm so blessed to be where we are in, in, in the Canadian prairies because our skies are mm. phenomenal. Mm -hmm. 
Gosh. I, yeah, I love it. Yeah. I love it. We have long dusks and twilights, and that allows for amazing sunsets and sunrises. Mm. So, Carl, before we get into really what is not a shocking or surprising quote from an Episcopal bishop, um, this was decades ago, but nonetheless, this is their vision and how they look at things. Um, I want you to give an overall answer, response to that question that was asked that you put in your book in the chapter on spiritual politics in Game of Gods, and that is, would there be room at the table for a united religions? There's United Nations, uh, so wouldn't a United Nations of religions be, or would it be too bureaucratic, too expensive, too risky? And so share with us, because it just makes sense that of course, they want to unite all the nations, global unity, right? Why would they not want to unite world religions? What do you say, Carl? Oh, yes. That is ultimately the goal. It is the aspiration. Uh, when the United Religions Initiative was formed uh, in, in its early days, that was really their hope that they could turn that organization into a, re, uh, a United Religions um, and even before that, I believe it was the Temple of Understanding in New York City, which is having its 50th anniversary next year. Uh, their whole goal and, and hope initially was that we would have some form of UN Parliament of Religions. And there's actually been a number of, of recommendations and suggestions to do something like this. During the year 2000, the United Nations Millennium Peace Forum uh, came together with thousands of religious leaders. Uh, they they converged at the United Nations, and there the aspiration and the whole and, and the goal was: what we need is some form of united religions, mm. just like a United Nations, where we could come together. This is the hope. Now, sometimes hopes and reality don't come together, and so far it hasn't come together. And I've watched the movement for this, and I've watched how sometimes organizations clash with each other, mm -hmm. you know, in, in this in this hope for unity, um, everybody wants to be, want us to be the guy who can say, I did it. <laughs> and so I have literally, I have literally watched in meetings as, as temperatures rise and people get angry and heated because their agenda and their organization isn't the one leading the charge or, um, <laughs> You know, it doesn't mean, David, that they get along. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's interesting, and it's yeah, an interesting point, and that's they're, human they're nature. People. Yeah. Right, they're people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're human beings. Hey, so let me ask you this. Um, I, I understand Christianity to them is the big no-no because we are exclusive. The gospel is exclusive. It is Jesus. He is the way, but... Every other religion or ism or system of belief, spirituality, they say that their way is either best or their way is the way. Or Doesn't everybody have an, an ex exclusivity about their religious system? To some extent, yes, absolutely. That, that's, the, that's the irony of this. In fact, the interfaith movement itself, if you really think about it, <clears throat> holds dear to its own heart an exclusive truth claim. Mm -hmm. Their exclusive truth claim is that everybody must unite within this interfaith dream. But then what do you do with those who don't believe in your interfaith dream? Well, you are then at that point naturally being excluded. And so we make the claim as believers in Jesus Christ, as biblical Christians, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one that comes to the Father except through him. It is it is exclusive. Amen. God has also an inclusive side in that he wants all to come to him. Yes. But he wants all to come to him through his exclusive way. Because he's the author of life, yes. he can make that demand. Mm -hmm. In fact, he's the only one who knows how to bring that about. But the rest of the world, including the interfaith movement, also has its exclusive claims. And that is that you have to abide by and go with their idea. And so there's this clash, and, and yes. there are workshops at the Parliament, at this last Parliament, the virtual one that happened a couple of weeks back, and then at the 2018 Parliament, there are workshops that you can go to on how to deal with the problem, because that's what it is, the problem of bringing evangelicals into the interfaith 
community, how to bring evangelicals into, <laughs> you know, to that table. Whole workshops on it, yep. David. Whole we're, workshops. Well, we're the problem. On these, on these problems. <laughs> yes. Yes. The, two, the 2001 parliament that happened like in, in October, there was an entire workshop on John 14, verse 6. Hmm. Interesting. And it was led by Christians who were trying to justify and you know, change the meaning to justify the interfaith position that they hold. Wow. Unbelievable. Well, it's not unbelievable because— and, and by the way, you, you note in this chapter that they have been trying since the early 1970s at the World Conference on Religions for Peace. Sounds good, right? But it's a coalition of faith mm-hmm. leaders. They've been issuing resolutions, recommendations. They've been working toward this goal at least since the early 1970s. And here we are in the year 2021. And how much progress have they really made to try to do this. Well, I would say a little bit, but um, let's go to a quote just above that, Carl, a quote from uh, Swing. Is his name Swing? Yes, William E. Swing, yes. an Episcopal bishop in California, in San Fran. Uh, he said something to me that was fat, not surprising, but fascinating. Um, and we made the joke earlier before we got back on the air. We are either looking at it through different lenses or we're reading the, a different Bible. He said this, quote, For a second, but only for a second, I allowed myself to consider the first of the Ten Commandments, primitive and structural. Thou shalt have none other gods but me. And then uh, several sentences later, he says this, If the planet Earth is ever going to have a chance of continuing as a cosmic oasis in the vastness of the universe— Perhaps we need to take a second look at the first commandment. End quote. Carl, go ahead. <laughs> wow. I set How you, you up. That, yeah, right? yeah, I set you up, man. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bishop Swing is an important person within the interfaith community. In fact, in 1993, uh, he received a phone call from the United Nations asking if his cathedral could host a massive interfaith assembly to uh, commemorate the 50th anniversary of the United Nations. And, of course, he agreed with that. Mm. And so they hosted this in in San Francisco. And after they hosted it, the idea of a United Religions, in fact, it was called United Religions Initiative, because the initiative was there to create the United Religions, as we had previously discussed, the idea of having a, a UN of religions. And he went around the world... Uh, drumming up support for this idea. Uh, in fact, he, he, he did a world tour that became quite famous in interfaith circles as he met various religious leaders to try to bring them on board. And there's such an interesting quote where he says that for a second, but only a second, I allowed myself to consider the first of the Ten Commandments. What, what strikes me with that, David, is how his understanding, the conscious understanding that he still had as somebody claiming to be a Christian, Mm. how that still pricked at him. It was still poked at him. It still bothered him. Yes. Which I think is a good, it's a good thing. Mm. But then he buries that and he says, no, no, we, we need to go beyond that. If we want, if we want to have a world society. So to me, when I'm reading the, you know, his comments here, it just strikes me that there's a knowledge. We know what God's Word says. And if, if, if we're honest, David, it's, we all do this in our own lives to some extent. We do it individually, but we also do it collectively. And we've been talking about the collective, but if we're honest, we also do it personally. Hmm. We know what God says. We know what His Word says. Yes. And it makes us uncomfortable. And then we do something else. Yes. That's such a powerful quote because it attacks the very truth of God and his law. The Ten Commandments, I mean, have no—I mean, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, of course. Jesus said—he also said that when he was on the earth for those years. But it it also says, have no other gods besides me. That's a commandment to— 
to resist idolatry. And we have a lot of idols in our lives, but for a, quote, spiritual or a religious representative who allegedly their system, their denomination, their religion once believed in the Ten Commandments and, and maybe most of the Bible, but to attack something as foundational as the Ten Commandments I guess it's like it, it to me. It's 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 wow, duck! Look look out for the lightning! I mean, it, to us, we're going wow. That that is that's kind of scary that 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 men representing religions would have this view. But I just want to point to one thing. Some people might not say, well, you know, I I know John fourteen six says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. But did He ever say He was God? And I'm tired of this question because He did. I and the Father are one. And so many times, if you believe the Father, you believe me. And he, in uh, John five, verse uh, forty five through forty seven, He says to the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have put your hope. And listen to this, verse forty six. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Now, there's alarming statements that Jesus made that are so clear. How could Moses have written about Christ? And even John the Baptist said, one who comes after me is greater than I because he existed before me. Wait a minute, John the Baptist was older, how could Jesus have, you know what I mean? So there's so many claims to his deity. Carl, your closing thoughts, we've got two minutes left on wrapping this up and understanding this is nothing new under the sun, these pushes for global unity and bringing together mankind or religions. You're right. There is nothing new under the sun, and we have to recognize it as a alternative salvation message. Man is saying, we will build heaven on earth, we will be our, you know, the masters of our own meaning and destiny. Um, we will be as God. Mm. That's that's really the story of 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 humanity's rebellion and 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 humanity's position. Of course, the biblical message is: no, you can't save yourself. The author of life, Jesus Christ, He's the one who can only save. Mm. And during the American Thanksgiving. I really hope that that becomes a point of thanks, thankfulness as we look at the world around us and recognize the changes at the same time placing our faith and our trust mm. and our hope in the one who doesn't change. Amen. Carl Teichrib, where can people get a hold of you other than your Facebook page, of course? Uh, I'm on Twitter as well, but you can go to my, my I have a book webpage called gameofgods.ca. You can read excerpts and, and go through some of the materials. You can also go to my webpage, forcingchange.org. And Forcing Change is a resource of articles, reports, and 109 back issues of my Forcing Change magazine. You just need to sign up. It's right. free. It's gratis. Go in and mine it. Carl Tykrib, God bless you, brother. And uh, we will keep in touch, my friend. Thank you so much for what you do. Thank you. All right, when we come back, well, actually, we're not going to come back. We'll see you. uh, Have a nice Thanksgiving, by the way. Tomorrow you will hear from Dr. Erwin Lutzer. We will not be silenced. A great book we discuss on Stand Up for the Truth and keep speaking the truth about things that matter.